0: it's another edition of the talking Mets podcast here on this thursday january the 28th 2021 of course i'm your host mike silva you can check me out all the time at the talking mess send me a tweet at mike silva media and you get the show on apple Podcasts, spotify pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire if you want to interact with me mike silva at talking no g mike silva at Mets podcast.com Well, uh, welcome to a midweek or late week edition of the show. A lot of news coming out yesterday. Wanted to come to you before Sunday because I really think a lot of stuff is going to go stale quick. And I think there's big news coming down. I don't have any information on that, but I think big news is coming down. And I think that uh, what happened last night late with the trade of Steven Matz to the Blue Jays for three prospects is a sign of things to come. So I figured let's jump in and get right at it. I do have a guest that I had a chance to catch up with as the plan was really to take a lighter show as we wait out the back half here of the hot stove and potentially things heating up and and whether or not things really heat up before the Super Bowl. Who the hell knows? It's such a slow-moving hot stove. But Lou Schiff, Baseball and Law on Twitter, and I talk about uh, the news of the DH not being, as of now, part of the National League. We talk about the benefits of the DH, our thoughts on the DH, and we also briefly get into the news about Kurt Schilling, his letter to the BBWAA, uh, the Hall of Fame. I know we talked about that at length on Sunday with Kevin Kernan, but I want to get into that briefly, uh, just to put a little bow on it. But what you really want to hear about is the Mets. So first, quick, uh, we'll go real quick here because you know we're not going to belabor those points. Aaron Loop, lefty reliever. Uh, once they lost out on Brad Hand. And it's really interesting when you look at the Brad, Brad Hand contract with the Nationals, all the deferred money on a one-year deal. Nationals, Mets got criticized under Wilpon ownership for deferrals and Bobby Bonney and all the things. But the Nationals do a ton of deferring of money, a ton. They've been doing that for years. And, and I'm sure there's a very good financial reason. It's nothing to be made fun of. But uh, from a player standpoint, the benefit, I guess there's interest, but I would think the Mets could have, even on a one-year deal with the same money, uh, could have matched that. So clearly it was about closing. And I, I think the last time we came to you, I think Hand had already not had signed yet with Washington. So that came down late on Sunday. But uh, not crying over that. Uh, it would have been nice to have Brad Hand. He, he wanted to close. He he wanted to be closer to his uh, home in spring training. There are things outside of money, unless you really blow somebody away, which the Mets were not going to, nor should they have uh, done that just to have somebody. That would have been, let me have somebody because I want them type of move. Once that happened, then I was like, all right, Justin Wilson, you know him. Uh, Jake McGee's out there, although I've had some people tell me that he's a one-pitch pitcher. Dodgers have done a good job of trying to work on him with his location. And I never really thought of Aaron Loop. So Aaron Loop is, what's interesting about him is he's lefty, of course, but he's a sidewinder. The, the Rays know how to find these guys, and he's, he was successful even before Tampa when he was in Toronto. He was a solid reliever. But the Rays always seem to find the right guys, whether it be through their system or free agency. The most important thing, and I'll get deeper. I keep saying it, and I and I will, because we're going to go through the Mets' bullpen before spring training. The thing I like about him is his walks are very low. They're they're below two per nine. They're going to be below three per nine. So you get a couple of really nice things there. One, you don't you get a guy who's lefty, who gets lefties out at a high rate, and can get righties out. Very important in the three-batter world that we live in. Uh, two, he's got a different look. He gives you a different look with the sidewinder than a Castro or, or a Batances type of situation, and he keeps – he keeps the ball in the ballpark, and, and and he doesn't put runners on base via the walk. And that's been the Mets' biggest problem in the bullpen. And that's where they could improve the most. And, and Familia and Betances are, are the biggest culprits. Although there are rumors, so now you know, Matt's his money's out, that Familia may be on the way to. Nothing credible, but I saw some rumblings out there. So, so there's that. Then Mets announced the second big hit as we went through the news yesterday. Mets announced that Zach Scott will be the acting GM. I'm not surprised there. Mets may bring in a veteran uh, GM like Billy Epler to mentor Scott. We talked about that on the last podcast. Sometimes be a big boy, grow up, go do the job. You know, you could have people to help you and give you advice, but, you know, to coddle people through this job, I don't agree with. But any kind of – and Billy Epler is well-respected. If you could bring somebody into the front office that could add context and perspective and have relationships throughout baseball, who's been doing it a long time – whether you like the Yankees or not, they still run a really good organization uh, for many, many years. Bring that guy in, and and Billy Epler, who was fired as the Angels GM, very well may be joining uh, the Mets. But Zach Scott, and and I said I thought was very impressed with him on the Feinson podcast. Very analytically driven, perfect guy to head up. And they've already brought over some big names. Looks like they Ben Zammer, I think his name is. Uh, from the Dodgers as uh, you know, a big win for the analytics department. Mets are going to fix that part of their operation. They're going to spend money there. You don't have an owner that comes from Wall Street in the hedge fund world where quants and analytics and data is their game and not improve on that. That's going to happen, and the Mets are going to make it happen. And they have a guy in Zach Scott that comes from a fantasy baseball background all those years ago, just like Jared Porter grew up in the Red Sox organization, Hopefully, has the people skills to and, and relationships to master that part of the job. You know what the media and all that stuff. He'll work it on that. You know, maybe he won't be a great quote. Maybe he'll be boring. Maybe they won't look forward to seeing him on Zoom. But that's not necessarily the most important part of the job. It is a piece of the job. Uh, hopefully, he can have the people around him from a scouting point of view to incorporate that very important part of the equation, that's why I liked Porter, and I thought he and Porter were a great mix, and, and I saw Zach Scott as part of the cabinet, but look, this is what you have now, Porter's gone, to go through an exhaustive GM search, not necessarily the right thing to do, Alderson cannot do everything, you could certainly plug it with Alderson in the short term, but you need someone who's a little bit more progressive, has has worked in the game recently, has, has more recent ideas, that's not Alderson, I'm sorry, that's not Alderson. So I'm fine with it. We'll see where it goes. Does Zach Scott turn out to be miscast, where he's a a, a cabinet member in the big seat? We'll see. He may not get the job full time, but I think they were very. It, the reports were they were very impressed with him, and they're going to give him every opportunity to get this job. and And we wish him well. He seemed like a nice guy talking, uh, you know, on that podcast. And I recommend if you haven't listened to it, go to the Feinson podcast. Mark Feinson, who is executive access, listen to Zach Scott. You'll hear about his background, his history, and, and some of the things that uh, got him to where he is today. Okay, then there was the big move, and uh, obviously it was a good move from a baseball standpoint, but it did come with some, I think, sadness because you traded a local kid and a guy who's been with the Mets organization a long time. I mean, we were talking, at least me and 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 the cohorts, I know, good buddy Joe DeMeo. Uh, over at the That's so Mets podcast, SNY. Uh, we were talking about Steven Matz back at the old NYBD site back in 2009. I remember how he was struggled so much with the injuries, Tommy John. Took him six years to make the big leagues, had that great debut. Who who can't who would didn't like that Sunday doubleheader debut when Steven Matz made his uh, the start at Chase Stadium, got a few couple of hits, you know, his grandfather was up there in the press box uh, or the luxury box or the family box. can't remember what it was. And uh, he was going crazy. Long Island kid. And I remember what was cool is that they were so young, the Mets, at that time, all these young uh, pitchers, that uh, he and DeGrom, I believe, were hanging out. And I think Matts took him home with him to either his parents' house or where he grew up on Long Island, which is right near where I am. And he was over there getting a a sandwich over at the Seaport Deli over there um, up in the – the Stony Brook area, and uh, it's like it's it's like you know what Kevin Kernan said on Sunday: the players live in the neighborhood, they played the a game, and there's that connection. Now you're not going to get that forever because those were very young pitchers, you know, making league minimum and just starting out, and basically half a minor leaguer when you think about it, and the mindset anyway. So that's a long time ago. You know, Max doesn't even live on Long Island anymore, but it was cool to have somebody that grew up from the area, went to school in the area. Had that connection, and I could tell you, I had a friend. In, I have a friend in minor league baseball, and when he was uh, called up, I had called him and said, "You know, I know he's in the Pacific Coast League, Mats, but uh, what do you think?" He said, "Mike, you know, I got a scout friend that said best pitcher you've seen in the Pacific Coast League maybe in over ten years, and a lot of people that that this particular guy had spoken to thought he would be better than Noah Syndergaard, and these were people that were in the Mets organization." or people that were connected to the mats and that and, and that didn't happen now Mats remembers something before you call his career failure he went through his injuries with the the big league club he's been a, a, a below league average five starter type for a couple of years now very frustrating at times he would have great outings and he was awful last year uh, with the exception of maybe one or two starts but he came up in 2015 helped that team who was struggling with some of their back end of the rotation he and cigard, were a big upgrade over Nice and Dylan G. And he started uh, a game against Kershaw in the uh, the postseason in the NLDS. And he lost that game, but he kept the Mets in the ballgame. You weren't going to beat Kershaw that night. That was the night they were going to try to clinch it at Chase, Chase, City Field. And then they had to go to LA to win it. Uh, pitched in the World Series, very good game five. Uh, Mets lost that game in extra innings, not because of Mats. Not easy to do that, young pitcher, first time up pitching in the World Series was was shaky against the Cubs in the the NLCS in the clinching game. Uh, got bailed out uh, by David Wright, a big play there. Uh, but uh, you know, look, he was still he got he 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 was there and he kept them just enough in the game to get them to where they they need to be. Everyone talks about Bartolo Colon. Bartolo Colon didn't start in the postseason. He was coming out of the bullpen. It was Stephen Matz. So Stephen Matz has some, albeit. A disappointing Mets career, but has some nice moments. And he, I, I personally think he's a great guy. There's a lot for charity. Um, these are good guys, but but it's a baseball, baseball is a business, and it, it the train keeps moving, so the train moves, and the Mets get uh, basically three minor leaguers. How useful they will be, who knows? None of the deals, and I won't because I'm sure Zach Scott was involved in this, and, and maybe. Because who knows how long it was been, been in the play. Maybe Jared Porter as well was working on that. Hopefully, because this was one of the things that Porter, while you brought him on, he kind of saw some of this undervalued assets that uh, potentially were in those deals. The story, I think it was Peter Gammons or, or Bill James said about how uh, when they made that deal with Andrew Miller, how they were able to go out there and, uh, and find the best prospect. Maybe not the one that everyone was talking about, but find the prospects that made sense. Uh, Maybe that falls into this. Uh, Look, Sean Reed Foley, Yancy Diaz, Josh Winkowski. I think think you uh, pronounce it Winkowski. I'm sure somebody will email me saying I botched that. But uh, Sean Reed Foley, Yancy Diaz, Josh Winkowski. Reed Foley and Diaz are pitchers that could potentially pitch a second game with a doubleheader, provide you depth 7-8, 9-10. The Mets needed that. They have options, so you don't have to worry about passing them through waivers Winkowski uh, younger A ball some good numbers uh, the only thing I was able to get feedback on was Diaz clean delivery nice changeup, throws hard a little, about 96 miles an hour that's from a scout I know so uh, I don't think any of these guys are going to go out there and make you forget uh, Steven Matz and what he did in 2015 or 2016 who knows but they're going to be useful pieces on the roster And it's the depth. It's the little things that help you win a championship. And uh, the Mets don't have enough pitching depth. And that's really where I go where this move has to be a precursor, in my opinion, to something much bigger. Because the Mets needed Steven Matz at the back of the rotation. Because now you have, let's assume, no other move. You have DeGrom, you have Carrasco, you have, I'm drawing a blank. Could you believe it? DeGrom, Carrasco, Stroman, Lucchese. Jeez, I'm drawing a blank. Could you believe it? Peterson, right, Peterson. And uh, and then Syndergaard coming back in some point in time, in the first half, you think. I'm a little shaky with Peterson and Lucchese as those four and five. I mean, Lucchese's a nice, I mean, he's probably going to be able to give you exactly what Stephen Matz gave you in 2018 and 2019 as a starter i mean he could give you that his you know, petco park numbers were a lot better than on the road and that's a pitcher's ballpark but forget about it i'm not gonna get crazy who knows they they did their due diligence on him i have to think another pitching move is on the way and if they trade familiar i think that's an even bigger sense about that and yeah maybe this is to make room for jackie bradley jr so you shore up the defense or who knows what they're going to do with a you know another value-driven arm. I mean, Corey Kluber, guys like that. Garrett Richards getting $10-11 million a year. Steven Matz of $5 million is a bargain. Because i got to tell you, you're going to tell me Steven Matz is any worse than Garrett Richards? I don't know if Steven Matz is worse than Corey Kluber at this point. Yes, he needed to a change a his change scenery. No doubt. For him, this is great. But for the Mets. Five million dollars, Stephen Matz, that's a deal you'd be looking for on the open market. So there's gotta be something big coming. And I really think now you heard the Angels are out, and it was underreported, but it, it if you if you listen, if you read MVP Machine, and I think I've mentioned this before on the show, the book, uh, Great Book, which Bauer is featured in there because of the methods that he himself went out to seek and employ from uh technology to improve his game, he and Mickey Calloway didn't get along. And the reason was Mickey Callaway was a much more traditional pitching coach than – I guess he positioned himself because he was positioning himself coming to Mets as a great, innovative, forward-thinking guy, a team that was stuck with guys like Worth and Collins that were not anything close to innovative. So it was interesting, and I never thought of that because I brought it up, and it should have been the first thing where I'm saying, if you listen to Bauer's video – he wants to be able to employ his methods and be able to take ownership in his development. That didn't happen with Callaway, and I'm not sure he's going to go back for round two with Callaway on that. So so it makes sense that now you have the Mets. The Dodgers are out there. Certainly he's from California. He said location's not going to matter. He wants to be able to take you know win. Mets can win. He wants to be able to go out there and employ his methods and, and embrace uh, with the organization, and hopefully they offer him Progressive, analytically driven uh, ideas of how he can improve his performance. And the Dodgers certainly fit all of those, so that's a threat. But the Mets can offer those too, uh, albeit they don't have the same track record. So the the chances are that this market is really coming to the Mets. It's probably going to be a shorter term deal of four years. There's going to be an opt out in there. Uh, There's certainly going to be risk with that, but I think it's going to be far less risky. Than going out there and signing a pitcher like the Yankees did with Jared Cole for for long term for that kind of huge total sum of money. So I, I think something big's coming. Maybe by the time this goes up this morning, a big something big will happen. This will go stale. But there is other things we could talk about which make this worthwhile. We're gonna take a quick break. When we return, Kurt Schilling told the Hall of Fame, specifically the Baseball Writers Association of America, I don't need you. They can't handle it. What's next? My reaction on the vote. Hope to hear from you soon, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. I'm, I'm not going to go too deep into the Hall of Fame. You guys heard my vote on Sunday with Kevin Kernan. You could go back and listen to that. You heard Kevin Kernan's vote. If you don't want to go back, what you really want to know real quick, what I would have liked to have seen is I'm a Bonds and Clemens guy. They were Hall of Famers uh, before the steroids. Bonds, if you want to go up to 1998, and there's a guy that was a a gold glove outfielder, 30 stolen bases at times, 30 home runs, led off at one point. Uh, By the end of that run was a middle of the order. uh, Not too far off from the Bonds that people, was the cartoon Bonds. Uh, He was still probably top three, four, five hitters all time. And uh, maybe he was an all-around better player before the steroids. He was much more offensive-minded after the steroids. So I think the Bonds up to 98 was a Hall of Famer, if you use that as a demarcation line. Same thing with Clemens before his Blue Jays uh, renaissance. 192 wins. Far better than the next two pitchers, Maddox and, and Doc, during that era. Uh, I talked about Scott Rowland and how Scott Rowland compares very well with overall statistics to guys like Ron Santo. And 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 to me, there's there's enough uh, uh, similarities between other Hall of Fame third basemen. He's top, eleventh all time when you look at at wins above replacement. And then from an offensive standpoint, of the era, you know, Manny Ramirez, Gary Sheffield, right-handed bats. Manny might be the best overall right-handed hitter of that era, one of the best of all time. You know, the late Hank Aaron. No disrespect, but Manny Ramirez from a, a run creation was every bit that hitter. Uh, Sheffield was right there with greats of the 90s in terms of offense with you know the Ken G- Griffey Jr's and Mike Piazza's and things like that. And then uh you know Jeff Kent who I've been on the fence and I know Mets fans probably don't like hearing it uh you know best second baseman during a 10 year period better than Robbie Alomar, better than Craig Biggio from statistics and uh and and those guys are in the Hall of Fame. So you could go back and listen to Sunday's show if you want to get more in depth. Now the guy that I was always on the fence and it was Curt Schilling. But when I started to look, and and a great analogy or great comparison that Kevin Kerning gave on Sunday was you know, Curt Schilling's Jack Morris. Maybe he wasn't always the best pitcher every year in terms of statistics, but he had the, that, that big postseason moment. And, and Schilling had a couple. I mean, when Arizona and Boston, and, and in a way, even though Minnesota had that great win and that, that historic performance that Morris did in Game 7 in 1991, Shilling with the bloody sock game and what the Red Sox did in 2004. To me, that's one of the best baseball moments of all time. I mean, that was you know you have to be there. I was there watching those games. How historic it was and how big it was to beat the Yankees and come back and do what they did. So um, I thought Schilling should be in. Now I didn't think he would get in because it was close with the Ryan Thibodeau. You know, he collects the ballots ballots at about forty percent, and, and the other. 50 or 60% that were left, your numbers always go down. So you got to be above 75 in a lot of ways significantly above when uh, Thibodeau puts that stuff out before the vote to to get in and, and Clemens and Bonds were at 70, 71. Uh, Schilling only dropped a few points and he missed it by 16 votes. Bonds and Clemens are kind of stuck in this 61, 62. So uh, I'm with uh, Kevin Kernan. He gave, you know, perfect way he put it. At some point, and it really leads into the real controversy with Schilling. Put it in the hands of the committee at the Hall of Fame. Let the the peers figure out these steroids, guys. You got Manny Ramirez, definitely Hall of Famer. Nowhere close to getting in. Same with Sheffield. I don't know if you want to say Sheffield's definitely, but great case. Bonds and Clemens, there's no doubt. Put Bonds and Clemens in the committee. Let them figure this thing out because clearly – it's too toxic for the Baseball Writers Association of America to figure these guys out and look at it the way I looked at it, which I believe is very fair and common sense. Now, the, the thing with Schilling is you can – if you want to use advanced metrics like war, which I know there's probably a, still a good percentage of the committee, the BBWAA, that's not going to do that. He's a Hall of Famer. He's 20th all time. And you talk about Jack Morris, and I'll say this uh, about Kernan's analogy, very much uh, a good analogy. And Morris pitched longer into games and had more wins. But when you look at overall numbers, Jack Morris did flush out very league average, statistically. And Schilling's not that. I mean, Schilling's like John Smoltz. Schilling's like Tom Glavine. Schilling's like Fergie Jenkins. Look at the numbers. It's not me making it up. And you could go to baseball reference if you want, and maybe it's a little bit different. But it's all in the the same measurements, and the same players will show up. In, in, in those little clusters. Trust me. I used a little bit more fan graphs this year. I'm, I'm liking fan graphs a little bit more than baseball reference. No knock on either one. Both are great sites. Now, Schilling is upset by the way he's being portrayed in the media. So he, he sends, and this is where it's great. Basically, you know, remember when A-Rod said, the truth shall, shall set you free? Remember that when he was having all those issues with the media, putting a ton of pressure on, on himself, and he finally said, screw it. And uh, he he became clownish at the times toward the end of his career, and maybe he took that to an extreme. But he was kind of like the old person that lets the, lets it go and finally takes all this weight that they hold. Because what a lot of ha- what a, a lot of times what happens with people is they spend their careers trying to be what everyone else wants them to be and what the you know expectations need to be instead of just being who they are. And I always say. The biggest issue with the media and the fans here in this town is they don't manage expectations. Sometimes they create these ideas of what things should be. So if you don't perfectly meet those expectations, you fail. One of the things I think we have to stop doing is putting this idea of who these people are as people. Because forget politics. Everybody's got their issues and everyone's going to rub people the wrong way. If you put all baseball players that are on your 40-man roster and and worked in an office environment with them, just like your office or your place of work, whatever you do, there's going to be people that do a really good job on a field that you're going to start to say, this guy, that guy really annoys me. I don't like him. Now, does that mean he's not a good pitcher? Is that a good hitter? Is that a good manager? No, but that's not why you watch the game. You're watching them for three, three and a half hours a night for their performance, for what they can do on the field. Not for the, who they date, not for how they think about the voting process of the president of the United States, not for their belief systems on all these other things. Now, there is clear good and bad in people, and I've seen some of the things that Schilling has put out there. I wouldn't put that out there on social media. Hanging journalists, not something I'd do on social media. He definitely has issues with the media throughout his career, and I saw the quote, and Kevin gave it on the Sunday show. He was a horse uh, a horse on the day he pitched, and a horse you-know-what – the other four days, I, clearly people around him said that. I think it was Ed Wade, the former GM of the Phillies, that came up with that. So um, there's validity to that. Now, what what really made—there was two things that drove me crazy yesterday when the vote came out. Nobody made it. So here's the BBWA in a time where they could be marketing their product, the product they cover. I don't think they care about that. All these great players from a decade, not, not none of them are going to be at the Hall of Fame, which potentially could be this summer with the way things are opening up around the country. I still have my doubts, but at we'll, we'll see a Hall of Fame ceremony next summer for sure. And you can have all these players from a generation, a generation of younger fans, uh, you know, maybe not all my age in the 40s, but even younger that watch them really get engaged and enjoy baseball. But no, they're not going to have that. Now, maybe part of that is they want Derek Jeter to have center stage because I think that's something that in, in their weird fantasy world that they 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 value. But Buster only writes on Twitter, and, and Buster drives me crazy sometimes because he's another problem uh, child when it comes to re- uh, thought process. Moving forward, the baseball writers would be best served by insisting the Hall of Fame apply the character clause itself. Let the Hall of Fame declare which players have passed its character test before forwarding the ballot of eligible players to writers. How about we just stop looking at character? How about that? Because now that's going to open up a whole Pandora's box, and 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 you wonder, you know, well, what is, you know, you're going to go back and you're going to have to start kicking people out of the Hall of Fame, and who who at the Hall of Fame is going to do that character uh, test? Is it just going to be the committee, the Veterans Committee? Because I got to tell you, I'd love to start looking at some of the veterans committee and their backgrounds and look under the hood. The writers are basically saying, "I can't handle this." So guess what, guys? Let's take it one step further. We'll just have the committee do just like the other sports do the vote. Maybe we'll get a, you get different players from different eras, and you put together a committee and let them vote. And you know what? I bet you it'll be a better vote. It'll take away some of the fun of Thibodeau and his ballot counting. We could still have the same debate. And they don't have to listen to the sanctimony. And a friend of mine on Facebook, you guys know him. He's been on the show, Joe Cassell, former sports agent, still involved in the business. He said the real problem is that the writers have turned this into a me. Look at me. Look at my video about my ballot. Look at how pious I am. Look at, look at my morals. I'm going to be better than everybody else. It's like when, when me- members of the media have to put pictures of themselves – wearing a mask on their profile, that's for them to say, look, I do the right thing, you should. I, people aren't going to do something because you do it. I don't need you to do it. I'm not a child. I could figure out things for my own way. I could figure out morality on my own way. I don't need you in a, in a profile picture in Twitter or a video about the Hall of Fame to do that. That's, that. That drives me crazy. So Schilling then says, you know what? Take me off. I'll let the Veterans Committee decide my fate. and and I didn't read the manifesto and and I don't care I don't need to read that's the the point he's got a wife going through health issues feel bad for the guy in that sense nobody should have to go through that forget about their political beliefs and the writers get well you can't do that you can't do that it's like well he's saying I don't need your validation and they can't handle it they're throwing a tantrum it was a beautiful thing and I said God bless Kurt Schilling finally truth shall set me free I don't need you. I don't need you to validate me. And if the Veterans Committee decides I'm not worthy, oh, fine. And he kind of bounced in there. Maybe he, he even knows. Look, he's a smart guy. He knows that he's a borderline candidate. He's got a very good case, better case. But when you say Kurt Schilling's name, I didn't think Hall of Famer right away. When you say Bonds and Clemens, I broke down those numbers. I didn't need to break down those numbers. I saw them play earlier in their career. I saw them play late in their career. I knew both versions were Hall of Famers. Roland, Sheffield... Shilling, you had to dive into it. And maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe, but that's a small haul mindset, too. So Schilling says I don't need you. And guess what? All of us could learn from that. Because if you spend the better part of your career or your life looking for other people to give you the validation that you just should give yourself, you know, you're gonna have a, a very miserable existence. And I think that's the the problem. Everybody's trying to outdo everybody with the look at me. You know, I think Joe Gonzalez said it best. Look at me. Look at my vote. Look how, look how pious I am. Look how my morals are better. I have the right attitude. I'm part of the club. Just talk baseball. I don't need to see you with a picture of a mask. I don't need to hear about your morals. I don't need you to outmoral the next guy. Believe me, there's no life lesson that I'm going to learn from a baseball writer or from a sideline reporter or from a politician. I'll do those on my own. You'll do those on your own. Let's just talk baseball. Now, real quick, Sean, and this was a good column, Sean McAdam, over at the Boston Sports Journal, uh, wrote a piece about he was disappointed in seeing who Schilling has become. He knew Schilling, uh, you know. Sean uh, wrote for the Providence Journal, guy who grew up in Massachusetts, and uh, you know, obviously bleeds Boston sports. Perfect guy to report on the teams there. You know, they have those blinders as Bostonites, but it, 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 that connection with the fans, you grow up. It's like me what I do here. I grew up a Mets fan. Now I'm trying to report. You know, they, they, you leave your fandom behind, but because of your background, it makes you better at what you do. He wrote a very good piece, Sean McAdding, the Boston Sports Journal, saying he's disappointed about who Curt Schilling has become. Not sure he'd want to interact and talk with him, but he enjoyed covering him. And here's where you have to be careful about the morals police. Who you think Curt Schilling is, when you read the article by Sean McAdam, he talks about during the World Series win in 2004, playoff shares are divvied up and clubhouse people and all other types of workers around the organization are eligible. And I've talked to players who have done this. not an easy thing because as you give out more shares to more people and full shares, you take money out of other people's pocket that potentially were playing the whole season. Someone's going to lose. The players will lose. And you can say, oh, you know— some players are, you know, one year in the major leagues making a half a million dollars. Or what, at that time, the, the minimum was less. You're not rich for life. You need the money. But what Schilling, who was a big driver behind this with that Red Sox team, insisted that a lot of regular workers get full shares. I mean, guys getting 300 dollars $250,000, $200,000, uh, clubhouse people, back-end people. Not talking about backup uh, catchers here. Life-changing money. Think about if someone at your job gave you a $300,000 check tomorrow, what that would mean for you and what you can do. And Kurt Schilling had something to do with it. Now, he doesn't talk about that. Sean McAdam is talking about that. I don't think Schilling publicized that because it's the first time hearing about it. Maybe I'm wrong. But sometimes when somebody tweets something about their political views or when somebody talks sports and has a different opinion and you think, oh, you're an awful person, you don't know that person. And Sean McAdam gave you at least an inkling of an idea that, you know, Kurt Schilling may have complicated thoughts about the world, and maybe he's used social media poorly, and maybe he's communicated his positions poorly, and he may be in a bad place now because of some life situations. But that doesn't mean that you know him, and that doesn't mean everything about him is bad. And guess what? Give me a guy that helps out the people that, the small people around him, that changed it, you know, got his uniform clean. Book travel made his life easier in a very wealthy world where maybe you could argue they should do more for themselves over the writer who wears a mask on their profile. Trust me, because that guy who wears the mask and lets you know he wears the mask or has the blue check mark or tells you how pious they are or how moral they are, probably wouldn't give the 300,000 to the clubhouse person. They take it for themselves. and I'll leave you with that. God bless Curt Schilling telling the BBWA to go, you know, put it where the sun don't shine. Because guess what? A lot more people should do that. Give it—Kevin Kernan said it best. Give the vote to the uh, uh, to the Hall. Let them figure it out. The Veterans Committee. All right. Lou Schiff, baseball and law. Let's debate the DH. Let's hear his thoughts. We'll be back with that and more right after this. We like to use all the advanced tools available when debating the Hall of Fame inductions at the Talking Mets podcast. That's why Jay Jaffe, author of the book Cooperstown Casebook, joined us to talk about his Jaws rating system.
1: Yeah, you know my system, Jaws, the Jaffe Wins Above Replacement system, is based on you know advanced statistics, specifically Wins Above Replacement, the baseball, uh, sorry, baseball reference formulation. You know, it's a it's a it's a total estimate of a player's offensive and defensive value or pitching value, uh, and you know the benefit of using something like that is that we do try to capture. Uh, you know, all the facets of the game, not just uh, about the hitting milestones. Um, it's about a player's base running. Um, so a guy like Larry Walker, who was a tremendous runner, out, you know, in addition to being a great hitter, uh, is helped. Uh, it's about defense as well. So so Walker and Roland and, and, and several other guys on the ballot are helped. Um, you know, we so for so long, those categories were kind of paid lip service to, but not really thought about too hard in the context of hall voting, and and I think what we've you know, what I've been able to bring to this and and encourage others to bring to it is that that total aspect, you know, because baseball history, I mean, it's a mess Um, it's very hard, uh, I think without advanced statistics to judge you know, the relative worth of of a player who's, you know, who's putting up big numbers in the 1920s and 30s or uh, the steroid era uh, versus the ones who are playing in you know, say the dead ball era or uh, you know, the mid-60s um, and, uh, you know, fortunately I think people have caught on that this is a good way of looking at it.
0: Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back and I always like trying to bring on new guests and joining me. You guys might be following on Twitter and if you're not, you should at baseball and law, Lou Schiff, he's a, you know, Sabre Research Award recipient, Uh, has a ton of interesting nuggets, and before you roll your eyes, say, oh, you're bringing a lawyer on, Mike, no, he's he's a baseball guy, he's an author, and Lou, welcome to the program, And what perfect timing, Hall of Fame controversy, CBA, DH, as we record this, who knows what's going to go on with the hot stove, but welcome to the program. How you doing?
2: It, it's great to be here, Mike. Uh, it, 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 it's it's wonderful. I'm doing fine. I'm staying socially isolated the best that I can <laughs> and, uh, you know, just, just waiting and hoping that we're going to all day, one day, all be together and be able to do stuff again.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it looks like the baseball season will start on time, but the rules of engagement, and I was talking about this, are still up in the air. We don't know what the expanded playoffs look like right now. There's no DH, which I think is patently absurd. And, and look, I'm a longtime National League fan. I've always been a proponent of the DH. Now, if you guys go to Baseball and Law, what really got me to bringing Lou on about the DH, and we could have went so many different directions, was back in December he tweeted out a very interesting uh, story, I'll guess I'll call it. And I didn't know this: that back in the 20s, 1928, the National League actually proposed the original DH. It was a ten man rule, bat and run for the pitcher, which obviously was supposed to liven the game up. You know, you've heard that before, right? And helping less pitching changes. That's nineteen twenty eight. Not exactly modern day baseball. Pre integration, no, uh, you know, shifts and all that. So it's interesting. Here we are, all these almost hundred years later, we're still talking about the same thing.
2: So uh, to go back, I think it was like 1929, but 1929, 1928. Yeah. It, it, it seems like yesterday for most people. Sure. Um, John Heidler, uh, who was the National League president, he's the one that proposed it, and 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 they wanted to call it the 10th man rule, which is the designated hitter, and it's everything that that we know it to be today. With the same things, pitchers would be able to pitch more innings, which is kind of hard to believe because pitchers then were always pitching complete games. Sure. 15 runs and you pitch a complete game, but it was voted down by of all things the American League, and wow. and so the the idea sh- sat on on the shelf for years and years and years. And because everybody thinks, well, you know, Blumberg with the Yankees, he's the first designated here in 1973. It's it's a brand new idea, but it really wasn't a brand new idea. What was what was old became new. It just took time for people to say, okay, let's do it.
0: Now you're, listen, old old transparency, we're both Brooklyn guys. You're from the Avenue U, I'm from 18th Avenue, so it's you got, regardless of how long you live there, you got that connection. There's always that and, connection. And I have that, I have that
2: accent still, no matter, I've been living... I try outside. to lose it.
0: Hard. You can't. I try to lose <laughs> it, you can't, and I listen back to replays of the show, and I'm like, oh, oh, please, Mike, stop, stop. So and when I
2: come up to New York to visit my cousins on the island, it's like... <laughs> It, it, it's instant it's like well it, I, I
0: got a double whammy i've got the brooklyn accent for 26 years and now i've been on long island for 15 or 16 so i've morphed into something far more insidious for the public to listen to so you have that but nationally look brooklyn not that i was a dodgers fan but i probably would have been if they had stuck around i think that's just in the dna of how i grew up as a sports fan um national league uh, background but i've always been a dh fan more so now than ever i think it's important look uh, you know, it, it with the age of pitchers now, I think pitching changes and openers and the constant parade of bad pitchers, most teams can't have 13 good quality pitchers, is bad for the game. The DH, which increases the offense, it used to be, uh, Lou, half a run. I don't know what it is now, but in that ballpark, let's say. And um, I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary for the entertainment value. I think it's necessary to make pitching better. Uh, I know you'll lose out on the Jacob deGrom or the Bartolo Colon or things like that. But uh, outside of the politics of the CBA, I don't see why that both sides wouldn't want this. I think it'll happen. I think it would be egregious if it didn't happen for 2021 and then after. But what are your thoughts as a guy growing up in Brooklyn, probably a nationally guy? uh, Are you in agreement?
2: So – Born in Brooklyn, moved to Long Island, moved to North Belmore when I was about six years old, stayed in North mm-hmm. Belmore till my senior year in high school, and then we moved to Florida in nineteen seventy-two. Uh, graduated North Miami Beach High. Uh, went to University of Florida, got a degree in journalism, went to law school in Minnesota at Hamlin University. It's the only law school that accepted me, so true. That, Went there.
0: There you go. Hey, look.
2: You know, you go. And you
0: made, and, and you probably made the right choice. A little bit more job security being a law than in journalism. And, you know, and and, and th- things turned out okay. <laughs>
2: Took the bar exam right. twice. The Florida bar wrote me a letter after my first exam. Told me they they like me. They liked me so much they wanted me to sit for the exam a second time. So I there I you obliged go. them. I, <laughs> I did it one more time. There but, you go. Um, growing up, I was a Met fan, and. Uh, Jerry Kuzman comes to mind as like the world's worst hitter when it comes to a pitcher. All right, I, Was was there anybody worse than Jerry Kuzman as a, as a hitter? In, I'd in, have to
0: look in, at the numbers. That's an interesting cake and I'll have to look at that up after our right. segment. I, and I might
2: be wrong, but I I do remember Jerry Kuzman like being the world's worst hitter. And, you know, he'd come up in a situation where they purposely load the bases or put somebody on, and and, and it was all over because K stood, Kuzman stood for K, and it was a strikeout, and that was the end of the inning. But as a National League fan, I really like the designated hitter because I really think it involves a different kind of strategy. But I've rethought it after last season, hmm. and I rethought it because as of now, I'm a Marlins fan, and I've been a, a season ticket holder since since the beginning in '93 when when they came down here. But but as a Marlins fan. Um, I liked what happened last year because it gave the team opportunities that we never had before.
3: Right.
2: And and I and you see you see that there. Yeah. You talk about pitchers. Uh, I was at the game when Jose Fernandez hit a home run against the Braves, and he did the casual backflip, and the the play the crowd went crazy. But there was almost a fight at home plate. Um, <laughs> and so, but that only happens what once once sure. a season maybe. Right. And 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 so the designated hitter I I think would be a great thing to stay in baseball, but you've got to get the the collective bargain agreement doesn't expire till the end of the end of this season. Mm -hmm. And unless there's something in it for the players and meaning money for the players, they may not have an interest. I, you know, I I teach a law course at at Mitchell Hamlin, which is the the law school up in Minnesota in St. Paul called law and the business of baseball. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I emphasize to my students, uh, is that the baseball is a game that's played by kids in high school uh, played growing up in the sandlots, but baseball played by major league baseball is a business. Right. And so it's all about the Benjamins when it comes to, to baseball. And, and, and so it, it, it changes a little bit. They want to put fans in the stands, like you you said. um, And and you want to see hitting. I think people really want to see hitting because we don't have, I mean, look at all the great pitchers we've lost in, in the last year, you know, Bob Gibson, uh, Tom Seaver, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we've lost a, a ton of people. Uh, Whitey Ford, uh, just, just a ton of people have passed away. Uh, Sutton, I mean, all, all these great pitchers, but we don't have those kind of pitchers anymore. So uh, the game has changed.
0: What's interesting is, so as you're talking, I'm like, let me go to baseball reference stat head, and I'm doing some quick queries. Uh-huh. Now you're right and wrong on Jerry Kuzman here, and this goes, and it's interesting about it. Jerry Kuzman career, 121 batting average. That's pretty bad. and But all time, he is behind only Dwight Gooden and Tom Seaver in terms of hits. Now, that could also be longevity and things like that. Now, I also did one time I took, and I'm trying to piece this back together because it's been a few, uh, I think it was last year. I looked at the total amount of at-bats that a pitcher had over, or pitchers mm-hmm. for a team over the course of a season. And it was the equivalent of a homestand of a 10 game. So think about if you had a homestand, one homestand of 10 games or so, two weeks, let's say. Mm -hmm. And you just saw pitchers play. Pitchers just got up to hit. Mm -hmm. I think the quality of play, I think there'd be a lot of televisions turning off. Now we don't look at it that way because it's only three, four at-bats a game, but I think that's where it gets to. And, you know, for every single time, you know, Jerry Kuzman hit two home runs, uh, Doc Gooden hit seven in his career. Seaver hit six. Right for every one of those moments, and Doc was actually a decent. Was Doc a decent? And no, Doc was a one ninety seven hitter. And for every decent event like that, mm-hmm. is it worth sacrificing? Nobody's looked at it this way: a homestand, a season, or a road trip. Well, that that was pictures.
2: Be, that would be the nineteen ninety eight Marlins.
0: Yeah. Well, that's that. That's true. Who, who I always will remember on a Mets show, gave the Mets a heck of a time down the stretch oh, and, and actually got a couple of big wins against them. Very obnoxious. That was a I'll say I'll, it's funny because we'll talk about history real quick. Jimmy Leland was the manager of that team year after they win. And he played every one of those games. I'll give him credit. His teams played to win mm-hmm. and they were tough outs. I was at a couple of those Met Marlin games at Chase Stadium down the stretch. They won two out of three that weekend. But what I remember about that weekend in September, right before they collapsed, was that the Marlins were in pretty much every game, and they just sweated out. You got to give them credit on that. So you're right, the 1998 Marlins. That's interesting you said that.
2: But I have some numbers on if you're interested. So yeah, if, sure. you, if we go back to to say the early 1900s, 1900 to 1989, and these are not my numbers. This is from an excellent article. From the Sabre, let me put a, a plug in for Sabre for those people that are not mm-hmm. members of Society for American Baseball Research. We have a magazine uh, that comes out quarterly. Maybe it's only mm-hmm. twice a year now. And, and this is a, a magazine, an article written by uh, a guy by the name of John uh, Cronin, who, who talks about the designated hitter. This came out of the, uh, the, the 2016 edition of, of, of the magazine. But he talks about batting averages. And so from 1900 pitchers hit between 1900 and 1909 they they were hitting a buck 81 by the time the designated hitter rule got to the american league pitchers were hitting a buck 47 wow and Brilliant. uh the the only time they ever ever had a decent batting averages was in in the 1870s and of course i'm not that old and i don't remember the 1870s but neither they, do i
0: yeah they, they hit the a joke me there five. neither do i right <laughs> So that's interesting you said that. That's and really so the
2: the variations between the hitting uh when the designated hitter came in the variation was 110 points difference between the average pitcher batting average and of course the an average player batting average.
0: Absolutely. So Loose Shift Baseball and Law, um seems like we're in agreement here, you know, it, it, you still have a lot of fans You t- and you talk about strategy. Um I I think having the ability to make pitching changes a little more freely to me, the strategy has always been, and this is my personal opinion, the chess match of the matchup. See, I'm always a little bit different. Hit and run. Okay. Great. All that. First to third, those things could still happen. But to me, it's always been, Hmm. Okay. I'm the manager now seventh inning before you had three battle rule lefty righty. What would I do here? And it's also me working with the pitcher on his sequencing. Now I'm doing a nuanced A fan approach here, but I like to watch and go, okay, would I throw curveball? Would I throw slider? Maybe hit him on the inside corner. And then you get kind of excited when you're right because you're like, it's mental bubblegum, I would use Mm -hmm. the term. So to me, that's where my enjoyment is. Maybe I'm looking at it from that point of view, but as long as you have the pitcher and the batter and the matchups and things like that, I don't see where a a designated hitter would, would take away from the enjoyment.
2: What I liked about the designated hitter was in the World Series. And, and, and so I, I really thought that that the designated hitter was always to the advantage of the National League team because at least their pitchers got to hit.
0: Sure.
2: And and so, you know, maybe through the first six innings, their pitchers were hitting, where in the American League, when they're coming up those first six innings, the last time they held a bat was maybe, you know, the, maybe batting practice the week before the World Series just so they remember how to hold a baseball bat. So I always thought that was a big advantage to the National League, uh, being able to have the, uh, the the pitcher bat in their home ballpark.
0: Now, while I have you on, uh, the Hall of Fame vote came out; nobody was elected. Uh, this is one of the fun times of the year. It's one of the more frustrating. It's one of the more outlandish. I mean, how people for a game that everybody says is dying, mm-hmm. the 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 anger and the discourse this morning on Twitter which I know is a very small percentage of the population, but I'm sure talk radio and, you know, whatever virtual Zoom meetings people were having, it we were baseball fans that came up. And uh, what's interesting is, and I had Kevin Kernan of the of Ball Nine, formerly the New York Post on on Sunday. And he basically said, you know, at some point, maybe it's time for him to kind of throw these steroids guys to the committee and have the Hall of Fame figure it out. And then I see Schilling and Schilling's requests. And to me, the debate on Schilling and where it's being lost is whether he is a Hall of Famer as a player. He's not a he's not a shoe-in. So all the politics are the nonsense. And I get that. I know why he's he's getting heat because of that. But to me, I don't I don't know if that exactly why he didn't get voted in. Maybe I think there's a component, but I, I think that there's a true debate on that. What I get concerned about is now I see writers when Schilling made his request for the BBWA to take me out. And, you know, you're getting to the point where there's a real, at least from a fan perspective, where maybe like the other leagues, the committee, you know, take a a, a committee of different errors and turn it into that because I think the confidence in the process is down because everybody's now – and I had a friend of mine who said who said on Facebook today – the writers have turned it into about them, putting videos out and things like that. And that's not good, because it should be about the players and promoting the game. Um, as a Sabre member, I think this is really an interesting topic. What is your thoughts on that? Because there's a lot to unpack there. Well, you know, it's day. kind of on
2: back and forth. So I don't know if you, you read Craig Calcaterra at all. Yes. He has the morning, uh, I'll, I'll give him a plug, because I, and I don't get morning, it free. Coffee, morning coffee. coffee. Yeah. Cup of coffee. and. Cup of uh, coffee it's it's like my first read in the morning between 6:30 and 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 10 to 7 whenever he has it out before I go to court and sure. um he's his position is you know look it's a museum uh it's there for it's, it's it's there because it brings in business to Cooperstown. but you get these baseball writers saying who should be in a hall of fame or not and 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 who says that they're the and I don't want to use all his words because I may not be quoting him right but what gives them the right to say this is this is the hall of fame per se and and we can debate about um like art shamsky has been um really plugging hard for gil hodges the last couple of years and he put out a tweet this morning talking about how uh all these people that had finished below Gill in voting somehow wound up in the Hall of Fame, and Gill is not yet in the Hall of Fame, and Mrs. Hodges is still alive, and they really were pushing to, hey, can we get him in the Hall of Fame while she's still alive, living on in the, the same house on Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn?
0: Amazing, uh, isn't it? Amazing, amazing. still living yeah, in this, really Bedford is. Avenue in Brooklyn, still yeah. living, amazing still, how it, that works. It, it is, uh, and, and, and so.
2: The Baseball Hall of Fame. We get into these arguments because if you say character character counts, then you get the then you get the argument that that uh, Ty Cobb shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Okay, that's the, usually the first name that comes up. Well, you know Ty Cobb shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. And then, believe it or not, there's Pud Galvin. Pud Galvin was the first pitcher to. He was Cy Young before Cy Young pitched. Pud Galvin was the first pitcher to to win 300 games in the major leagues. In 1889, again, I wasn't there for it, but I've studied it. In 1889, he admitted to using performance-enhancing drugs. He used something called monkey testosterone. Right. I, I, I tweeted about that this morning because my comment was he's still the only person in the Hall of Fame who has admitted to using PEDs. And he got elected into the Hall of Fame. It took him until 1965 before right. he, he was brought into the Hall of Fame. So we there is precedent that somebody who admittedly uh, used a substance and he was embraced by the media. The media thought that was really cool. Um, I can't remember. I mean, the-
0: Gaylord Perry. Gaylord Perry was kind of a, a bigger than life Joe Negro with the, uh, the, the the sandpaper. We've gotten a little, what bothers me about morals is that yes, there is right and wrong. We know (laughs) there's some obvious right and wrong, but we could really go nuance with this Lou and start to say, well, this guy's bad because he ticked this person off or, you know, at one point, Dale Murphy, who's a great guy. I've had a chance to interview him. Didn't want women in the locker room because religious beliefs, not agreeing with it, not defending it, but Does that – is that reason enough to say morally? Like we're really getting into a really bit of a hornet's nest, and it bothers me because – and Bob Clappish wrote a great article over at The Record where he said even the BBWAA has their issues where they make awards for certain writers. And Bill Conlon, who got an award, Philadelphia writer, has since been accused of uh, misconduct. Now, the only reason he's not being charged is because – and I don't want to get into it on the show. It's a family show – but is because it's past the statute of limits. Mm-hmm. Do we? I mean, you know, I don't think he should lose his award. Um, you know, we can't go back and erase history. There's a lot of bad history in baseball. So, but do you want to go back and erase it? You're a Sabre member. Do you want to erase and make the perfect – do we want to erase the pre-integration? Do we want to erase the bad things? Because we learn from it, and it makes history, and it makes us better, I think. That's we, always we, been my
2: part. We've taken Kennesaw Mountain Landis' name off the most valuable – trophy not we but baseball baseball right. because of, of the things that he didn't do as a right. or what he could have done as a sure. He, sure he 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 was not proactive in integrating the game you know he, he you know right. we talk about how he saved the integrity of the game but he didn't go a step further to, to do what would have been right and and, and and now we're now we're really learning those stories even more and more on what was not done, what was kept hidden as opposed to what was done. So his name comes off the most valuable player award.
0: I've even I've even gone to say I look at pre-integration numbers and I and I and I have to say they're not the best of the best. You have a, a, a but and we don't know how good some of these stars were mm-hmm. and were not allowed to play ball. But, uh, I mean, I said the other day, if you go post-integration, Seaver, Maddox, uh, Clemens, take the steroids out, might be the three best pitchers of all time because Walter Johnson didn't play against African-Americans. I mean, think about that. Cy Young did not – you know, the, the award – so it's very – you're starting to get into a very nuanced debate that's got a very slippery you have Bob slope. Bob Gibson, who had the
2: lowest ERA in the history of the world, and sure. then, like, well, you know, your ERA was too low, so we're going to change the height of the mound. are going to change the so, mound. the right. question. Had right. it been a white pitcher that did that,
0: would they have changed the height of the mound? We don't know, and that's in the midst of the civil rights movement. You know, that's, that's in the midst of all that. So there's so much you can go into, and I worry because – Morals are are moving the goalposts, um, you know. I, and I don't know who it was who said, you know, O.J. Simpson is still in the Hall of Fame.
2: They didn't take him out.
0: Different sport, still in the Hall of Fame. Well, that, I, you know, I, a jury, I,
2: a jury didn't, the, the jury acquitted. I him. mean,
0: it's really, it's really tough. I don't think there's kids out there putting O.J. Simpson's Buffalo Bills poster on their wall. It'd be tough for me. Um, but I think I, we're a very interesting society now, where we're trying to correct everything. And make it perfect. And the imperfection is what I think makes baseball, even though some of it's ugly, it makes it fun. No
2: one's been taken out of the Hall of Fame. So there's no. never been a move to remove someone from the Hall of Fame. Got now, we've, we've read, again, when you read stories, and that's where you come into the thing about, well, if, if, if he did this and, and this one did this, then why shouldn't this one get in? I, I, I really, my belief is, and I may be starting to be in the minority. But uh, Pete Rose lied.
3: And we mm-hmm. know
2: he lied. I'm not taking away a single hit from Pete Rose, but he lied. And then he told the truth when it, when it suited him best. Sure. Um, the the ball players were using performance-enhancing drugs as they were hitting home runs like no one's ever seen before. Um, my, my son, who's now in his early 30s, Said that when growing up, Mark McGuire was his his favorite player, and he has said so many times he goes, "My my whole childhood like is ruined because I was rooting for a cheater." Right. Um, I think, it, and, and not that ball players should be role models because some of them will tell you, "Look, I'm not a role model. You know, I I'm a ball player. I'm going to make mistakes, and I'm going to go out there and do things." in in, in the 1940s and 1950s when uh, the reporters traveled with the team on buses and trains, there was a lot of stuff that never got published. That sure had of. there been the internet then, and had there been, uh, you know, everything else, that stuff would have been out there and would have been pub- would have been published right away. And we might
0: have a different view of some of these ballplayers. If Lou Schiff had a Hall of Fame vote, i put you on the spot. Who would your <laughs> Hall of Fame vote? What, w- what would you have liked? Okay, better yet, let me back up. What would you have liked to have seen happen today? Who would you have liked to see make it? Be honest. It could be nobody. No one's going to kill you here. You know who
2: I like on that list that only was in the 40s is Gary Sheffield.
0: Yeah. You know, very good hitter. Yeah. You and know, he's a steroid I, guy. He's a steroid guy. I, I know, guy. but I, I, I liked him. But, you know, that's
2: that's my bias because of 97. Right. Um, so that's
0: interesting. You you grow up a Mets fan. You go down to Miami and Florida. And now you're all Marlins. You don't have any connection to the Mets. You're kind of all Marlins. And well, you got more World Series doing that. Look, if you if you think about it, you, you had two – two and versus two the one you know and or that's, that's 86 69
2: and 97 and 03 and I've said this before and I mean I mean this if if, if Eddie Cranepool and Art Shamsky and Cleon Jones and Tom Seaver and all those other guys were still playing for the Mets I'd still be rooting for the Mets but, that's amazing yeah you know, but I came down here in high school and I followed them and I rooted for them and then the Marlins came and I love baseball and I live in Florida. My kids were born in Florida. You know, I got married in Florida. My whole family's down here. So I'm rooting for the local team right away. I mean, I cut the ties immediately. It's like, Oh, the, the you gotta
0: take it. do you ever take your kids back to Brooklyn? I, I took my wife back to show her old Benson arts at one point. My and she's kids, like, you grew up, uh, she goes, my, You grew up here? You grew up here, I go, yeah, yeah, I grew up. And here. my kids you know? were never to Brooklyn. My wife and
2: I years ago, I took them by the house I really grew up on in, in North Belmore, on Sycamore Lane, right across the street from Jerusalem Avenue Junior High School. Mm-hmm. Took them to see the house there. And then my wife grew up in in, in a small town in in, in New Jersey, uh, Greenwood Lake, New Jersey. And so we did like a roots tour. We were out in the Poconos, and we said, "Well, this is where we we were visiting cousins on the island out in Plainview, and it's all right. This is where we grew up in Belmore." And they go, "That's your house? Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was the biggest house on the planet." They go, "I know, That's, so it's, small. It's... that's your whole house? You know, it's I like, was Yeah, that's that was the whole house.' So we didn't. And you
0: never, you never would have thought. I mean, I I tell people, and I hate to say, I mean, because I got I get critics on iTunes saying you're too young to be an old fart and to act like you're, you know, but. I didn't have cable TV till I was 16. My early baseball experiences were radio, early WFAN. And that's why I think I do this, because there's that intimacy of the audio and that connection. I'm not much of a video guy, but I'm audio. And I think that's because I grew up listening to the Mets on Bob Murphy and Gary Thorne and Bob Murphy and Gary Cohen. And at back then, you, maybe you, you get half the games on free TV. And eventually, by the time I was 16, when they actually – it's funny for people to say, they didn't want to, there was like legalities about cable. There was areas where right. they would not wire you. Nobody could understand that in a, in, a, in a pandemic Zoom world that there were people, if this happened in 1988, right. we were in a lot of, we're in a lot of trouble. Let me tell you, we're in a load of trouble. I didn't have cable till I was 16. And it was like a toy. I was like, oh my God, I could watch all the games, the Knicks, the Mets, ESPN. And it mm-hmm. was like, you know, now, you know, people are cutting the cord. So, you well, know, think that. about it
2: and I'm a little bit older than you, so going to bed at night and then taking the transistor radio, sneaking it under my pillow and listening to Bob Murphy, Lindsay Nelson, yep. Ralph Kiner, and then if they right. won, we'd have a happy recap.
0: Happy and recap. And then and you know, the song I, and everything. Right. You know, the, the 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 happy song. And then back in the 80s, they would have the song, and I can't remember, the one from Goodfellas, when oh. everybody's getting whacked, they'll play that after a loss. So, so yeah, know.
2: growing up and I listened to that. And then they also – Listened a little bit to the Yankees, and then you know you had you had that time there was Mel Allen and uh, Red Barber, and uh, I guess I don't know if, uh, I, I forget who took their places, but that was a Met fan, so that right. you know that's kind of what I what I listened to, and um, so you grew up listening to games on on the radio and keeping score. All right, I, I, you know I, that I, was a big thing keeping
0: score when you went I, to the ball
2: game. I, I, I have that. a score book here. A, last year for the holidays, my son bought me two scorebooks. Right. Here and I used them during the Marlins.
0: Backward, backward K, backward K, backward right? K. There That's a lost. That's a lost art form too. Keeping score, the backward K, something that, along those lines.
2: And another lost art are people going to a bowling alley. No, not, not knowing how to keep score letting the computer keep score. For
0: well, it. that I have to claim. I can let the computer keep score. There the you go. I'll score. let the computer keep score. Right. You know, I, I also say there's a couple of balls that might've been jacked that I used to juice up my score a little bit too. I <laughs> used to call them the Colorado Rockies ball. That was the uh-huh. way we used. It. I go, let's use the Colorado ball and get things going on the whole thing. So Lou, before I let you go, baseball and law on Twitter, um, you have a book, let the listeners know where they can find you, what you got coming up, everything sure. they want to know about you. Cause you got some really good facts every, you know, pretty much every day there's something coming out of your, uh, your account.
2: And I appreciate it. So it's really a, a labor of love. Uh, the book, it was primarily starting to be used in law school. This is, this is the book. I don't know. If, uh,
3: baseball baseball and law.
2: law. It's on Amazon. At one point it was the number one, uh, uh sports law book when it first came out and I was honored when uh Sabre uh named it their baseball research book of the year for 2017 Uh, it was my co-author uh Bob Jarvis who's a law professor at uh, Nova Southeastern University it was the best term paper thousand page term paper I ever wrote and uh so what I do every day is uh I come up with some baseball law related thing for example uh what did I do today? I don't even remember what I did today. Anymore. I
0: think it was the hall of fame one today. Today well, was I, I, I
2: joked was a little bit about, about the hall of fame. So uh, uh, I did that. Uh, the other day was the anniversary of, uh, of the Mets, uh, Joan Payson family selling it to the Doubleday family. And so I made reference to the day it was sold. And I'll, I'll use right. headlines. My research has uh, newspaper headlines from that era, whatever that was. And then I made mention of uh, Steve Cohen uh, buying your club. And I, 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 you know the Marlins have a, a great ownership group, but Steve Cohen comes in there, and it's like he grew up a Mets fan. He's he's same, yep. basically the same age as I am. He, you know, yeah,
3: kind of the same area. Great Neck's
2: not too much different than yeah, Belmore. Right? Hold a second. Great Neck and North Belmore price wise, uh, come on. Yeah, dude. well, that well, I you was know, trying, trying to, but
0: you know, you had the same yeah, kind same, of a, same, growth, same kind yeah, of environment. I know the roots. money. Okay. The money part is same loose. roots, different bank accounts, right? But you know, you've got
2: a you've got an owner who seems to be like. You know, just willing to spend the money. I, I I did you see the video when he introduced the eighty six Buckner Ball? Yep. Is that yep. hey you want to yeah. see he can reach us down He here? Reaches down. Oh, by the way,
0: I bought this from Charlie oh, yeah. Sheen. By for the way, I bought whatever it, it is, a quarter yeah. of a million dollars. and yeah. Charlie right. Sheen had it at some yeah. point. So a world that only you and I could uh imagine living in. And uh what's good to see is that in a sport that needs energy, that there was a uh, a poll taken by the athletic and they were saying how Steve Cohen's desire to win. And hopefully it's not just that new toy desire that he keeps that for his, mm-hmm. as long as he owns the team or a version of that. It's never going to be, this is the honeymoon, let's remember. And this has actually been a shorter honeymoon. Like things have happened over the last couple of weeks. But uh, hopefully that's a good example for others to, hey, this is an entertainment business. It's, I understand there's a tax write-off benefit. I understand it's a very expensive asset. But if we forget what this is about, then you know the sport will die. And and I hate to sound like that because I'm the I, I'm I'm in I'm in till the day I die. You're into the day you die, but there's a lot of people and you may know them. Your kids that's another may not con- be in,
2: and that's a conversation for yep. another day. The the death of baseball because look, I'm I'm 65 years old. Uh, baseball to me is still the most exciting game. I enjoy it, but take a kid that's 17 years old and a really good athlete. Uh, do they want to play baseball do you want to play basketball do you want to play yeah. cross there's so many other things there sure. that 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 bring them away and 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 the length of the game has something to do with it you know the, 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 you know the three pitcher uh, three batter rule i'm not in love with that but i understand why they put that in they right. want to move the game along a little bit uh, but the, you know baseball needs an overhaul baseball needs to bring young fans into the game and and and, they, and, and otherwise I don't know where it'll be, and, you know, it's, an, it's a conversation we can have another day. Lou,
0: we could go on for a while. Two Brooklyn guys. I'll still forget Belmore, and I'm from Long Island. I'm out in the Smithtown area now. Uh-huh. Forget Long Island, Brooklyn. That's where we come from. Be well. Thank you again, Baseball and Law hey, on Twitter. And Pleasure we'll do you. this again, my friend. It's long overdue. Be well. Thanks, hey, my friend. Take care. All right. Take bye-bye. Take care. And that's Lou Schiff from Baseball and Law. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. Yogi Berra is a Yankees icon. His tenure with the Mets wasn't quite as historic. John Pessa, author of the book Yogi Berra, A Life Behind the Mask, described Yogi's final act as Mets manager on the Talking Mets podcast.
1: You know, when he finally was fired, I think which was a relief for him, Um, he knew it was coming the next day. Uh, He goes back into the Mets locker room, something I've never seen in all the years. I've been doing this for 46 years, and I've never seen anything like this where he just goes in and, sh- you know, happy and shaking everyone's hands, thanking him for taking them to the World Series. And everyone in the locker room watched when he went up to Seaver because Seaver had been advocating for him to be fired. And he said, listen, Tom, thanks for getting us to the World Series. I owe you a lot. Good luck in the future. And it was completely sincere. And he's walking out the the, the locker room and there's a scene where, you know, there's a crane pulled, 30 years old, by a 10-year veteran. And, you know, he tells the writer, he goes, you know, Yogi is, Yogi's a, a, a really great guy. He's, the only thing is he's probably too nice to be a manager as he's walking out. And, um, you know, that, that did that. just pluses and minuses to
0: that style. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. Alright, we're back. Final thoughts. Really up against it here. I, I Again, I owe so many people the mailbag, the shout-outs, the conversation. I promise, and I said this last time, so I'm kind of going back on my word, but we're going to have a show. I think we're going to have a show on Sunday. We're going to have a show on Sunday. I think there's, it's going to be jam-packed. I have some ideas of a guest. I'm going to try to make it happen. And I think we're going to be talking more Trevor Bauer. And we may be talking Trevor Bauer as a med. I don't. I have a feeling that things are really moving, just the gut has nothing to do with anything that I know and if not there's still plenty to talk about and I'm sure that the Mets will be moving somewhere in some kind of direction. We'll get to some of the beautiful comments that people have made and there's been some critical comments and there's one that I particularly want to parse through because it was very interesting. so uh, stay tuned for that. I want to thank Lou Schiff baseball and law interesting guy love having these saber guys on maybe two maybe more old. I know I get criticized well Mike, you're too young to be this old school. well you know I believe me. I'm progressive when it comes to baseball, but I also think we need to honor the history and embrace the history. And I think sometimes, what's the old saying? You don't know it's the good old days till it's gone. Well, maybe that applies to some of baseball. So, anyway, uh, thanks, Lou Schiff, for uh, joining me on the program. I enjoyed it. Hope you did too. Um, you know, that's that's really it. Of course, you can check me out all the time at the thetalkimitspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silver Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at com. No, G, Mike Silva at com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast on Sunday. Big things are coming, I feel. Till then, take care, everybody.